You're listening to The Human Factor from Inc. Magazine. I'm Eric Schoenberg, the CEO of Inc. and Fast Company. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dory Clark to The Human Factor. Dory is a multiple-time best-selling book author. She teaches at Duke University, Fuqua School of Business, contributes to both Inc. and Fast Company, as well as the Harvard Business Review. And that's the check-the-box resume. She's also uh, recently named to one of the top 50 thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50. Now, what Dory really stands out and where she is uniquely talented is that helping professionals build a personal brand and find financial success and soul satisfaction in a world democratized by social media. Her books tell a story. Standout Networking, Reinventing You, Entrepreneurial You, and her latest, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Now, the long-term, the long game, rather, is not about putting together five-year budgets for your company. It's about setting long-term goals for yourself and then nurturing the resilience and strategic patience to reach them. Sound good? Let's dive in then. Hi, Adori. Hey, Eric. So glad to be here with you. That's great to have you. Now, um, I'm going to play the long game in this first question here and go back to another book in the Dory Clark canon, not the long game. We'll get to that. But um, Entrepreneurial You and Everyone knows that an entrepreneurial company or an entrepreneurial personal brand needs a good origin story. So why don't you start us off by telling us the Dory Clark origin story. Where'd you come from? How'd you get to where you are? Oh my goodness. Well, I grew up in a, a small town in North Carolina and it was not it was not really the greatest fit for me. I spent my childhood um, just being a little twitchy and wanting to try to find ways to get out and to be able to start doing other things. I would watch TV programs uh, because, of course, there wasn't the internet back then. And I'd watch TV programs about people in, in big cities doing interesting things. And I was really eager to be able to get on with my life. And so I went to I went off to college early. I started when I was 14. I graduated when I was 18 and had a lot of uh, different adventures along the way. I worked as a reporter, as a uh, spokesperson on a presidential campaign. I ran a bicycling advocacy nonprofit. But ultimately, for the past 15 years, I've had my own business and that includes writing books and teaching for business schools and consulting. But what I became really focused on was trying to understand as the level of noise in our overall media and culture increases, how can talented individuals and companies get their message out there? It's, it's so easy even for great people to be overlooked. And that, that is not a world I want to live in. I want the, the best to be able to rise to the top. But it's hard to figure out how to do that sometimes. And so I really wanted to try to help people crack the code. Good, good. Was there uh, something that happened that that um, sparked this pivot in your career direction? Well, ultimately, I, I never really initially envisioned myself as being an entrepreneur. That was... Uh, that, that was, you know, for for some people, it's it's a goal from the time they're a little kid, but it hadn't occurred to me, honestly. But something that was kind of foundational in my experience was I thought I would be on a track to be a journalist and just continue uh, doing that. And on Monday, September 
10th, 2001, I found myself laid off from my job. And of course, uh, keen historians will note that the next day, September 11th, 2001, was a very poor day historically to start a job hunt. And it really helped me realize just how precarious sometimes employment can be in the modern world. And it, it took it took me a while. I had you know a number of other jobs before I ultimately went to work for myself. But it implanted in me a belief that at a really visceral level, we all need to become the captains of our career. We, we can't rely on other people. We can't rely on institutions. We need to get very clear about where we want to go and how we're going to develop ourselves professionally because we need to build in optionality. We don't know what's going to happen, which I think the pandemic certainly hammered home for a lot of people. And so the more choices and options we have, the better protected we are from unexpected downturns. Um, a diversified career with multiple income streams is the best the best defense. Um, uh, one of the things that keeps people from thinking uh, long-term, playing the long-term game in their career is the frenzy of short-term goals. Um, you point that out in your book, but kind of what's wrong with being that busy? Isn't that something that people should aspire to? Isn't it, as people often say, better than the alternative? Yeah, absolutely. In our culture, there is certainly a huge push toward busyness. Uh, it is something that's held up, that's lauded. And I have spent a lot of time thinking about where that comes from. Uh, one of one of the things that I did in my past was I got a master's degree in theological studies. And uh, I certainly um, have spent a lot of time grappling with a legacy of the Puritan work ethic in, in which people who were favored on earth, they were hard workers making a lot of money, were seen as being blessed by God. Now, we don't necessarily literally think of it that way, but the legacy is still very operative in American culture, where, you know, unlike if we, you know, think about Downton Abbey, for instance, it used to be that, you know, the, the cool kids that were admired were the landed gentry who basically didn't do anything. That's not who we admire in America. We admire people who are wealthy and successful, but are doing things. The, the Elon Musks or the Jeff Bezoses of the world. And so busyness is certainly something that, that is lauded and respected, I think sometimes to an unhealthy degree. And one of the, the pieces of research that I cite in The Long Game is actually by a Columbia University professor named Sylvia Beletza. And she's done a lot of interesting research into the fact that, especially in American culture, busyness has become basically a mark of status. It, it's essentially a way of humble bragging that when you say, oh, I am so slammed, I am so busy, it's basically a, a coded and acceptable way of saying, I'm so popular, I'm so in demand, I'm so desirable. And so it is understandable why we might get a little addicted to, to creating lives that are like that and to talking about our lives in ways that are like that. One of the things you say in, in the long game is that the way to, to shuffle off all that busyness is to set priorities. You learn to say no to things, even things that sound good. Kind of what are your what are your uh, sort of the elements of advice around setting priorities and deciding when to say no? Well, it's you know for for any 
reasonable, high-achieving person, it is painful. Let's let's be very clear. It's painful to say no to things. Um, sometimes it might be a function of guilt that we feel bad if we're letting somebody down. But also, for many people, we get excited about opportunities. We want to do all the things. And so, understandably, uh, there's a degree of, of FOMO. You know, we don't want to be cutting off options for ourselves. So it is a painful process, and we need to acknowledge that. But also, it's important to acknowledge that, first of all, we know intellectually you can't do everything well simultaneously, right? You know, we can, we can sort of wrap our heads around it in theory. Uh, it's tough in the moment. But if we acknowledge, number one, saying no right now doesn't necessarily mean saying no forever. We can actually come back to it. This is why one of the things that I advocate is taking on goals in six-month increments because you focus on something for six months, and if you if it's still the right goal, if it's still the right thing, if it still needs finishing, fine, re-up, keep doing it for the rest of the year. But if not, maybe you can change. Maybe you can actually do that next thing. But it's about choosing a limited number of things to focus on in a sprint-like fashion. That's one of the most important things that can enable us to recognize all right, I'm not saying no forever. I'm not cutting off my options, God forbid, but I am able to focus in on what needs to be focused on. I'm actually curious for you, Eric. I mean, as a CEO, you are in a position where there there are huge numbers of people who are coming to you. They're looking for advice. They're looking for guidance. They need this and that and the other. You have your own priorities simultaneously. What would you say are the top principles that you use in terms of thinking about, you know, focusing and triaging and actually, you know, really digging into what matters most? Hmm. Well, I focus on the things that I think are most important to the company, and those are the financial health of the company and the and the well-being of the people who work for me. And if I can, you know, align whatever I'm being asked to do to one of those two goals, then it gets priority. If if it seems kind of adjacent to them, or uh, then it might be delayed. If it seems contrary to them, uh, might not get done at all. One of the things yeah. I, I thought was great about uh, about your book was that you kind of distinguish between the what what are the things that keep people focused on a long term goal as opposed to the things that people think are the important things. So, um, you know, for a lot of people, the priority is around money because that's kind of a default setting in uh, in, in the American economy. Um, and you know, increasingly, people think, oh well. Money aside, I want to do something meaningful. Meaningful, but that's often kind of hard to figure out what that what that is. And you have another metric, which is what's interesting. You want to elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's exactly right. I think so often where we go astray in our culture is that sometimes the the conversation, you know, as it as it plays out becomes insufficiently nuanced and we we get a lot of black and white thinking and so a lot of the time the conversation around how you know how do you find your purpose how do you determine what you should be doing comes down to this kind of uh, overly manichean view of okay it needs to be either money or meaning you know pick pick a lane 
And I think that's that's not quite right and it's not quite helpful. I mean, we obviously can see the shortcomings of optimizing for money. There's, you know, I mean, if it happens that whatever you you love to do is really lucrative, then, you know, Godspeed. Um, but if you are if you were making yourself miserable for money, I think most of us recognize that that is a very hard trade-off. The meaning question, though, is a little harder because it's really it's really been held up in uh, in contemporary business life that they, oh that's what we should do I should find my purpose I need I need to have the most meaningful job possible and again if you know what that is if you're rocking it then that's that's great you know three cheers but for many many people this is you know kind of it's 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 not very helpful it's kind of the equivalent of just saying well you know go find your soulmate and get married. Oh, you can't find them. Well, what's wrong with you? And similarly, oh, go find your purpose. Ugh. You know, where where do you start? This is very challenging and it's not necessarily intuitive and it's not something that you can, you know, just hit by sitting at your desk and beating your head against a wall. Where we where we actually do begin to find what's meaningful for us is through is through doing. And you you can't get there intellectually. You often have to dive in and people get paralyzed. And so I actually prefer a frame of instead of worrying about, you know, what's meaningful, we should optimize for what is interesting. It is a lower bar, but frankly, it means it's a more attainable bar. Just about everybody, you know, you might not know what your purpose is in life, but anybody can tell you, okay, is that interesting to me or not? And it is through doing, you know, through sort of nosing your way through the garden that you're able to get a better sense. You know, if it, if it stays interesting, keep doing it. And if it stops, then you can pivot and adjust. And I think it's it's kind of a kinder way to think about our careers. Mm, that's a that is a, a great way of looking at it. I can think of something from what I know about you and how you have become a Broadway investor, which is you know, it's not not aligned with the writing the books or teaching at, at Duke. And yet must be interesting. Yes, it is. It is very true. Absolutely. Uh, part of, of where the, uh, the the genesis of the optimize for interesting concept came from was actually another another interesting thing that I waded into uh, a little over a decade ago. I was a director on a environmental documentary film. And we were profiling the subject of this film was a woman who at, at the time she was uh, she was older. She was in her 80s and she was a housewife in the 1960s who almost single handedly, uh, you know, created this community, created this movement and led the cleanup of one of America's most polluted rivers. And so. In the interview process of making this film, I asked her some questions about her upbringing, you know, what what sort of got her to this point. And she told a story about her mother and what her mother had said to her the day that she left for college. And as she was walking out the door, her mother's final piece of advice was, whenever you have a choice, choose the more interesting option. And I thought that that was an amazing credo because... You know, I mean, sometimes we don't have a choice and we just have to do whatever the thing is. You, you know, it's it's inevitable that there are slogs sometimes. But if you do have a choice, it, I think it's powerful to recognize that, yeah, you, you actually can find ways to keep yourself engaged and to consciously make that decision. 
One of the things that keeps people from optimizing for interest or or for uh, soul satisfaction or is is their sense of looking ahead to the goal and seeing all the obstacles in front of them that they may um, you know want to be a recognized expert in some field but be a lousy writer and feel like they could never sustain a uh, a newsletter about it or understand that they don't have the network to have anyone read the newsletter, even if they can write. What's your advice for helping people overcome the the focus, the kind of natural human focus on what the obstacles are and to see past them? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I actually find surprisingly liberating about long-term thinking is that actually, if you have, you know, a reasonably long horizon, the amazing news is you do not have to have any idea how you will accomplish this goal. The further out it is, the less you need to know about it. I mean, it is, if we think about it, it is actually ridiculous and impractical to imagine that if you're looking at a, you know, let's say a 10-year goal, that you could actually predict every single step and every single piece along the way. There are so many things that could happen. You know, there's pandemics that can happen. There's market changes that can happen. There's new technologies that could happen. There's societal shifts that could happen. We don't know and we can't know. And so the I, I think we need to just let go of the the idea that we have to have the plan worked out. It's actually incredibly empowering that all we need for a long-term plan is the intention, you know, the long-term intention, and then the next step. Because as you keep taking each sequential step, you will gather more data, you will understand better what needs to come next. And as long as you continue to be directionally correct, you know, just you want to go see the northern lights, keep moving north. You know, I don't know which roads are going to be closed. I don't know, you know, where there's going to be, you know, snow blocking something, but just keep, keep heading north. And it may take longer than you want. You know, it almost always does, but you will get north. Um, Taking that first step is, is the hard part. How do you encourage people to do that? Yes, often, often that is that is the challenge. You know, once once you get into something, you realize, oh, it's not so bad. You got a little momentum behind you. But for those early steps, I think that one of the the most important things we can think about is how can we actually just continually lower the bar so that something doesn't feel like a big deal. And you know, I'll give you an example of that. Um, I was talking to a client of mine who really wants to write a book. This has been a goal of hers for a long time. But, you know, and so as a first step, you know, we had talked in our last session about, okay, well, why don't you, you know, read uh, these books, you know, a certain set of books. And, you know, these are the competing works. So you can begin to get an idea of how your the book you want to write might be different. Okay, you know, that seems plausible. So two weeks later, she hasn't started at all. Uh, and, you know, so I'm asking what's, you know, what's holding you back? And she said, oh, well, they just, they're, you know, sitting on my desk and they're, they're mocking me. And I just, you know, I don't have the time to do it. And it seems so stressful. And I realized it's because to her, it feels like a project. It's a big project to be reading these books and analyzing these books. And I, I said to her, look, this needs to be a lean back activity, not a lean forward activity. It's not some project you have to be mentally present for. I just want you to read them and take them in and see where there's gaps. I said, what if you bought them on audiobook 
and you you just listen to them when you were in the car, you know, 15 minutes here or there, you will get it done. You're never going to get it done as long as there's a stack, you know, of hundreds of pages on your desk that you feel like you have to read, you know, all at, all at once. We need to, to lower the bar so we can just get more comfortable um, so that it doesn't feel like we're taking some kind of momentous, portentous step, but instead just we're doing a thing and it's no big deal. Um, you know, I, I think what holds a lot of people back often for it, it's definitely that kind of thing, like it's, it's too big a bite, but also people are kind of, uh, uh, tend to be tunnel visioned and to not be able to see over the edge of whatever it is they're working on right now. Um, I think it's important, uh, and I know that you agree to have some white space to, as as they do at Google, um, by you know legendarily to give workers twenty percent of their time to just try to come up with something new and creative. How do you work that into your schedule? Yeah, white white space is important for for so many reasons, and you know ultimately, I think most of us appreciate the value of it. The idea that that we need just just a little bit of of bandwidth. I mean, for, for so long, but especially during the pandemic, many of us have essentially been trying again and again, week after week, to stuff 120% of things into 100% of the time. And it's just, it's just not an equation that works. And so we wonder why we're feeling constantly behind, like we're constantly catching up. And that, in fact, is the reason. There's a structural reason for that. So we need a little bit more margin in terms of enabling us to be more creative or to respond to things more in the moment. So, you know, the question becomes, well, how how do you do that? And I think, you know, again, to the point of uh, binary thinking, a problem that, that we often have, I mean, I have so many friends, you know, who'll say things like, oh, what I really need is a sabbatical or, you know, things like that. And it's like, yes, I'm sure you do, but it's very hard to actually take a sabbatical. You know, that's, that is, that would be amazing and yet also not super practical. So the real question needs to be not how do you get a sabbatical in five years? The question is how can you buy yourself an hour this week? How can we just, you know, turn the dial just a little bit to give you margin? There is there's a folk song that I, I really like by a band called The Neals, and they have a lyric that the difference between neurosis and psychosis is only two hours of sleep. And I feel like in business life, we actually have something similar, that the difference between being overwhelmed and burned out and being busy but manageable may in fact be only an hour or two of work per week, but there's a huge tipping point that occurs. And so I want us to just buy back that hour that or two hours, and that is attainable. And part of that is about tightening our criteria about what we say yes to. It is, it is not necessarily an easy thing to do. We have to fight to protect those boundaries, and no one ever tells you explicitly, so I will. If you are saying yes to the same things that you said yes to five years ago, you are making a big mistake. Because as you advance in your career, your criteria needs to get tighter and tighter so that you have more ability to focus on proactive activities rather than react to what is coming to you. That's really interesting. Can you give me an example? Yeah, absolutely. So 
you know, if we think about, you know, someone who's new to the workforce, they're, you know, in their early 20s, there's not a lot of people competing for their time exactly. So if someone says, hey, you want to come to that event with me? Do you want to, uh, you know, to meet these people? Do you want to have coffee with my friend? The, you know, not always, but most of the time, the correct answer is yes, because you don't have a better alternative. You have, you know, more time than takers for that time. And you need to learn by doing to figure out, well, who is a good contact or what are the activities that I like? So yes is a very good, you know, strategy. When you are, say, 45 instead of 25, you know more people, you probably have more power, and you have more people coming at you with requests. And so instead of just saying, oh, hey, sure, my friend suggested it, why not? We need to actually start implementing, and you know, this is not said in a way that is a snobby way. This is really just meant to be a way that we can understand that our time is more limited. So we need to start asking questions. We need to say, oh, Eric, thank you so much. Why why did you suggest that I should meet with your friend? Like, is there a particular goal? You know, tell me more about this. We have to get more selective because it can't just be, oh, Eric thinks it would be great. I don't know how good Eric's judgment is. I think this Eric's judgment is fantastic, but you know, the, the Eric, uh, out, out there in theory may not necessarily know who's a good connection. He may not have any idea. And so we have to get vigilant about guarding our time around the boundaries because over time, what we get rewarded for, you know, ultimately in terms of promotions and recognition in our brand within and outside of our company is accomplishing proactive initiatives that are high value. Random stuff coming to you is almost never super high value activities, um, you know, every once in a while, but mostly it's junk. And mostly what we need to be doing is preserving and protecting our time so that we can marshal it very deliberately towards enacting the things that are going to have the highest ROI for ourselves and our companies. Great way of thinking about it, Dory. You, uh, in your example of the 25-year-old who had the option to go to this event, you brought up the notion of networking. And I, you know, I know that you consider yourself an introvert, and yet you are you know, a Olympic class networker. How, how do you reconcile the two about, you know, the kind of the, the personality that's an introvert and yet the skill you have at, at networking? Well, first of all, thanks for the kind compliment, Eric. I appreciate it. I, the way that I think about it is when you are an introvert, the, the, the business world, the social world is not necessarily optimized for you right? It's, it's sort of the way that networking is commonly done or commonly thought about is optimized for, for extroverts. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like, oh, let's, let's just put people together and things will happen. And that's great if you're an extrovert. You can just go fend for yourself and it's fun and it's great. And you, oh, per people, I'll talk to the people. Um, if you're an introvert, this is like a, a very traumatizing situation. And so what I have come to understand is, is you absolutely can be successful as a networker if you're an introvert, but you need to tip the scales in your favor. 
if you just accept things as they are commonly done, you're you're probably going to be at a disadvantage because it's just going to be set up wrong. You know, it's like being the vegetarian at the barbecue, right? If you want to be smart, you need to bring your own Impossible Burger because the Impossible Burger may not be there for you. And so... Um, I see this as someone who's brought many impossible burgers. <laughs> so uh, what that means is that as an introvert, you need to understand what it is that is uh, your your unique comfort zone and try to make sure that as much as possible, the events that you participate in or host, which is a great solution, actually mirror that. So rather than going to random events that are curated often with very little care by other people, you know, because they're an extrovert and it doesn't matter for them, I, I often have taken up the mantle of hosting events, uh, you know, many, many of which you've attended and that's been, that's been wonderful. But there's, there's specific and deliberate things that I do. Number one is I try to make sure that it's a limited number of people so it feels more manageable. Uh, and number two, beforehand, I like to make sure that we send out um, that we send out a reminder note with biographical information about the participants. And this is a way that, especially for other people who are introverts, they can kind of ground themselves by understanding who's who's going to be there. Maybe I can research them in advance. Maybe I can actually come up with some questions or things I want to talk to them about. And it's a way of kind of de-risking the activity and making people feel more comfortable rather than feeling like they're just going to be plunged into a situation that they don't really know about or understand. And those small things can actually make the events much more comfortable from, you know, from a perspective of someone who's an introvert. That's a great idea. So hosting a party, throwing a party is an introvert's workaround. Very good, Dory. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I've, I've written about this with my frequent co-host, Alyssa Cohn. Uh, so uh, we, we've you know, worked, worked hard to develop a methodology. Um, you know, uh, an obvious attribute that you want to have to be able to play the long game well is patience. Uh, that's kind of worked into the very definition of the idea. Um, how do you develop that? I mean, it is, it is very true that if you don't, it, if you're looking at this long-term goal, as you said, you know, you don't know how you're going to get there, so you don't know what the milestones are either. How do you develop that, that strategic patience that will get you to the long-term goal? Well, strategic patience, there, there's a very, a very specific reason why I have appended an adjective to the word patience. Uh, and that is because patience on its own is something that I both dislike and am not especially good at. <laughs> so patience on its own, I really kind of have a beef with because I think that so often the way it is used or the way that it's deployed is people essentially telling you to just step back and shut up. When they say just be patient, often that means, you know, stop talking, you know, oh, well, I, you know, I'd, I'd really be interested in a promotion. Mm, just be patient. And it's, it's not very gratifying for people who are active people who want to make things happen. That being said, being impatient is not really a virtue either, because the truth is some things, many things, including things that are important, actually legitimately do take a long time. And if we want to accord ourselves with reality, we have to recognize that they take a long time. You know, other, otherwise you're just going to be up there tilting at windmills and cursing things. You know, why isn't working out the way I want it to? Well, it's because 
you know, get get with the program. Things take a long time. So we have to hold both both realities simultaneously. And so for me, strategic patience is my way of actually reconciling these things. That on one hand, I don't like it that things take a long time. It is annoying. I wish they were shorter, but they do. And so therefore, if I am going to be successful in this reality, I will be strategic about it. I will create a hypothesis about how things might work. I will test that hypothesis. If things are not working the way that I think they should, I might adjust and pivot because it's not that I want to just sit back in a barca lounger and wait for things to happen. I want to make them happen as quickly as possible. And, you know, it takes as long as it takes. But when we're strategically patient, we can hasten the process as much as we can and control what we can control. Hmm. A related attribute that uh, sounds like it's kind of folded into strategic patience is resilience. When grit uh, is uh, is an attribute, a characteristic that's having a heyday now ever since uh, uh, Angela Duckworth popularized the, the four-letter word. Um, do you have advice on how people can train themselves, make themselves more gritty, more resilient? Yeah, this this is so important because, you know, ultimately, if if we are talking about long-term goals and, you know, playing the long game, it is almost inevitable over a long enough period of time that at some point things are not going to work out the way you expected, that at some point there's going to be some kind of a, a detour, a roadblock, etc., and so we need we need to be prepared for that. Otherwise, you know, all the effort is going to go up in smoke because oh, you know, you hit you hit one thing that that wasn't expected. So, you know, something that actually was a keen motivator for me in writing the long game was the fact that so often I saw in my clients and the, the people around me what I consider to be a really excessive tendency to give away power to gatekeepers because there are there are a lot of people out there that you know some you know often not even with malice <laughs> but uh but just because they're busy or they can't be bothered or it's not their thing or whatever but they're going to tell you no or they're going to shut something down and i there's so many people that find themselves crushed and give up on whatever they were doing because they assume that that person who is rendering judgment is qualified to render judgment and they may or may not be we don't we don't know but it's equally possible that you know you could be you could be Jimi Hendrix but if you are trying to you know get in with someone that is uh you know a specialist in classical music they are never going to appreciate what you are doing and you need to find another place. It doesn't mean there's no talent. It doesn't mean you're not good. It just means that this is not the right fit and we have to find another way in. And so I think one of the most important things we can do is to recognize that, you know, number one, someone saying no doesn't mean that we need to shut down the enterprise or that they're right and you're wrong. Um, your, the door may be closed, but there are usually windows that we can get in. And so, you know, I, I try to be a, a fan of, of reality. If a hundred people tell you no, then, you know, okay. But if one or two or five people tell you no, that 
there's literally no way with those numbers to separate signal from noise. And I think we need to recognize that and we need to keep pushing past. Inc. Magazine is full of stories of successful entrepreneurs who were turned down by, you know, 100 to 150 uh, bankers or uh, venture capitalists before they finally got through. Um, Dory, what's your long game? So my long game, when I think about, you know, some of the long term goals that I have for myself, um, I you know, about five years ago, I engaged in some strategic planning around this. And my plan was in 10 years, I wanted to become one of the top handful of business thinkers in the world. And in 20 years, I wanted to uh, become a United States ambassador. <laughs> and, uh, and that was, uh, you know, that, that's, that's been kind of keeping, keeping me going. Uh, I'm continuing on that path. I also have added in another goal that, uh, I'm aiming for the 2026 season. I have spent the past five years educating myself about how to become a Broadway, hopefully a Broadway lyricist, a musical theater lyricist. And, uh, so I've continued to work on that. And I went from really from zero, from not ever having done it, not knowing how to do it to having been accepted to and, and graduated from uh, a fairly prestigious training program run by BMI, the music publishing company, and uh, now having written uh, a complete musical, having written multiple 10-minute musicals, and uh, and pushing forward on working to get that developed and, and hopefully uh, eventually staged on Broadway. Well, that's amazing, Dory. Um, I mean, Ambassador Clark. And I look forward to seeing your musical. Um, and, uh, and when it's up, uh, we'll be sure to be writing about it on, on Inc. and Fast Company. Thank you I, so I much. I love it. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to walk the talk of the long game, Eric. Uh, <laughs> no one does it better, Dory. So great to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Eric. That's all for this episode of The Human Factor. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss the next episode. The Human Factor is produced by Joshua Christensen with help from Blake Odom. 